This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, it's 7.06, it's Thursday, the 11th of January. And as my colleague Shazana points out, it's 11.01, 11 more, three ones for the year. But it's 11.0124, so it's sort of like, yeah, 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 you say. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, Keith, bringing us back to earth. And that was the voice of Keith Kam. Anwar Mabu jo- joins me in the studio. And of course, I'm Wong Xiaoning. Now, in about 30 minutes, we'll be discussing the recent appointment of the new French Prime Minister. And what does that mean for the country's political landscape? But in the meantime, let's recap how global markets closed yesterday. On the US markets, the Dow closed up 0.5%. The S&P 500 was up 0.6%. While the Nasdaq was up 0.8%. On the Asian front, Nikkei closed up 2%. Hang Seng was down 0.6%. The Shanghai Composite was down 0.5%. STI was down 0.6%. And our very own FBM KLCI down 0.8%. Okay, so for some insights into what's moving markets, we speak to Vishnu Varathan, Head of Economics and Strategy at Mizuho Bank. Good morning, Vishnu. Thanks for joining us as usual. I want to start off with consumer data that's going to come out um, later today, their time. What are your expectations for it? Because so far, it seems that the market is, at least the swap market is showing a lower chance of expected Fed cuts by March relative to pricing late last year. What do you think? Yeah, I I think that's pretty much uh, consistent with the data that we're seeing for two reasons. One is the data in and of itself. I think we've seen the easy part uh, of the disinflation coming through, whereas data that continue to come out now would probably show, uh, to a greater degree, stabilization in uh, slightly elevated inflation, which is still above the 2% target, rather than a continued uh, and rapid deceleration of inflation. So the first part is uh, you know, the, the, the disinflation story, whilst encouraging is not quite a done deal yet. The other part is the Fed's response function. I think the Fed has made some efforts to come forward to suggest that, look, guys, we are not going to cut as inflation falls. We need it to fall and be convinced it's going to remain in the past before falling. So markets are moderating expectations that uh, the rate cuts may not be uh, a very quick reflex. It might instead be a considered response later in the year, and even then, maybe a little bit more measured. Vishnu, let's talk about trade. The increase of conflict in the Red Sea has changed the calculus of global supply chains through the disruption of shipping. What is the short and long-term impact on trade flows with regard to ASEAN countries? I think, I mean, it's going to probably play out in two ways, and, and that's probably under the current dynamics where you don't have extreme disruptions. So it's going to reroute a lot of the uh, shipping uh, 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 you know, routes to to, to Asia and, and across, uh, and, and so what that that's going to suggest is it's going to take longer time. It's also going to incur higher costs uh, for for shipping, uh, for reasons of insurance, demerages, uh, the longer journey, so on and so forth. So put all of this together, I think on the commodity front, you might get a bit, a bit more of an acute price impact where uh, the delays are are, are showing up. And overall, it'll cost more and it'll take longer. So it might go to a place where you find slightly more inefficient uh, processes taking place. And on, on the part of businesses, apart from the higher cost and the longer waiting time, the response of businesses might be to stockpile. And so that might also unexpectedly increase prices more than we anticipate. 
And Vishnu, um, in the past, whenever we had geopolitical tensions, uh, oil prices would generally uh, shoot up. But I've been noticing that it's been fairly stable in, in what we've during what we've been seeing currently. Why has that been the case? I mean, that's that's really something worth thinking about, and, and especially if you take it in the context of uh, uh, an OPEC plus that's been very restrictive with supply. Uh, one would have thought that you know that the jumps in oil prices would have been more emphatic, but I, I I think this boils down to three main reasons. One is when it comes to geopolitics itself, so the crux of the issue, markets have become a lot more desensitized. So unless there is a trigger that directly affects either production or passage, as we discussed a bit earlier, unless there's an imminent and proximate impact markets do not react very much. Mm. The second reason is on the supply side, we've seen a lot more offsetting supply coming through uh, from outside of OPEC, particularly led by the US, and you've got the restrictions on Venezuela uh, lifting, so on and so forth. So there's been some offset of uh, uh, oil supply that's come on board that's dampening upside in oil prices. And finally, I think we come to the demand story where continued signs of weakening in demands, spots of it, uh, particularly outside of the U.S. and in, you know, led by uh, less conviction about China's growth rebound. All of this put together also suggested that on the demand side, uh, the impetus to boost oil is also a lot more contained. So I think the confluence of these factors uh, are, are probably lending itself to a far more subdued dynamic in oil prices. And Vishnu, I just want to quickly slip in something about the ringgit because uh, in the past, the dollar ringgit performance has always been dependent on how crude oil prices perform. Um, is is this still the case? Is this something that we can look forward to? That's something we've been thinking about as well because uh, in many instances, we've seen the correlations weakening. Uh, and, and I think it comes down to this. I think it, it's, it's a matter of oil prices would I think uh, cause very sensitive movements in the ringgit, all else equal. Uh, but the point is right now, all else is not equal. There are a lot of political distractions. Uh, so earlier on, there's some political uncertainty premium. We've also have got, uh, I, I think, uh, some renewed uh, interest in, in, in the fiscal account and how the sub, uh, a very subdued uh, global manufacturing uh, backdrop is also weighing on the ringgit. So Given all these factors, I think the impact of oil at the margin uh, has been diminished. So you don't find the oil support coming to, to ringgit all, at all times. Uh, the question remains whether by the same token, if oil prices were to suddenly uh, plunge, uh, particularly unexpectedly, whether that part of the correlation would hold or not. So these are, are, are perhaps things worth considering. But for, for sure, I think a lot of the other uh, uh, factors that you know we, we usually put down to all else equal business as usual kind of uh, narrative, those parts starting to move a bit more has probably drowned out some of the oil price effects. Would you say then is the catalyst to watch out for when it comes to ringgit then the performance of the Chinese yuan because that seem we seem to move very much in tandem. Oh, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, the Romimbi's correlation with Asian currencies as a whole has been very large. Uh, with the uh, ringgit, sing dollar, uh, it's also been much more pronounced. And I think that's certainly a risk to watch for, not just because, uh, you know, uh, countries like Singapore and, and, and Malaysia are, are, are very tied in with uh, China's, uh, China's uh, manufacturing sector, supply chain, so on and so forth, but also because of the financial flows involved. 
and I think there is a, a tendency to understate uh, or under account for this. So any potential for financial shocks uh, in, in China or any rechanneling of financial flows from China would also have a huge impact on the currency because arguably it comes directly into uh, the, the financial account and that's got a huge impact on the currency. Vishnu, very quickly, do you have a t- uh, like a year-end price for the ringgit? Well, we are actually seeing the ringgit stronger by year-end. Mm. Uh, so against uh, against the, the, the US dollar, we are, we are looking at, uh, at it on either side of four. Uh, and, and that's potentially because we think of the, the, the late cycle pickup in electronic would lead uh, a good manufacturing story for, for, for Malaysia. And there should also be good support or at least a backstop from oil prices by that time. All right. Thank you very much for your time. There was Vishnu Varatan, Head of Economics and Strategy at Mizuho Bank, saying there's hope for the ringgit. Uh, Either side of four. I'm, I'm, I'm quite excited by that. 3.9. Yeah, <laughs> compared to, to what uh, Anand Patmakandan uh, uh, predicted a couple oh, a few days ago, which okay. was, uh, you know, 440. 440. He of Maybank. Okay, that's a Maybank's. A bit more cautious, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about SEC because that's like really the biggest news of the morning. So the US regulators for the first time have approved exchange-traded funds that will allow direct investment into a into Bitcoin and this is really a landmark event for what is roughly a 1.7 trillion digital asset sector really looking to legitimise Bitcoin. At least that's the first one. Well, now it's validation by the SEC and notice to SEC's website, the regulator approved applications from BlackRock, Arc Investments, Fidelity, among others. Some of these products are expected to be in trading as early as today. I, what's interesting about this is also the fact that, uh, you know, the whole point of uh, coming up with, with Bitcoin and, and all, all the other cryptocurrencies was to have some form of deregularization. Uh, sorry, uh, sort of decoupling from uh, from being regulated is what I what I meant to say. Uh, and, but now it's going to be super regulated. Super regulated. So I well, I don't know what this means. Okay, so if you want an asset class to go mainstream, right? then it has to be regulated. There's no way around it. Mm. And one of the SEC's roles, there are three roles. One important role is investor protection. So these guidelines come out to give some sort of form of regulation to ensure that fiduciary duty does exist between the sellers and, of course, the buyers, which are, of course, the people like ourselves, right, who Mm -hmm. are one other alternative investments. The other interesting thing is the race to the bottom when it comes to the fees. BlackRock has already come out to say that they're going to charge 25 basis points. I think Cathy Wood's ARC Investment Group is looking at 30 basis points. So people are saying, okay, there's 11 funds here. Who's really going to be the biggest and will some fall by the wayside? But also depends on your investment perspective, in your long term or short term, because you, most times people look about liquidity, whether you can buy and sell easily. And these are the key concerns. Well, with them uh, creating a fund, there should be added liquidity to the whole uh, cryptocurrency. The other thing I have in mind is after Bitcoin, who's next? And I think from the way markets are behaving, it looks like Ethereum is next because it has jumped up at 1.6% this morning. It's come back down to only being up 3% uh, to 2,600. Bitcoin this morning, 47,452. 
also up 3%. There's also another currency which we don't uh, monitor, but uh, I do look at it uh, once in a while. It's called XRP, which is which is the, the cryptocurrency for Ripple. Uh, that's moved up from like about 50, 54 cents in the past couple of days to, I think it's trading at about 60, 70 cents, uh, 60, 62 cents uh, current, currently. The question is for all these funds, right? Who's going to be the buyers, right? Will it be the institutional funds or will it be retailers that are initially probably maybe because they don't have mandates, right? It's easier for them to make the decision to dip their toes. I'm going to be interested to see how much inflow we're really going to see into this ETF. What does this then mean for Bitcoin prices? And how do all these sellers, all these funds navigate when it comes to their fiduciary duties and warning of the risks? I'm, I'm also concerned of, on whether or not it's just going to be a fad that's not going to last very long and that volatility that comes along with it as well. Well, we'll be definitely watching this space. Up next, we'll cover the top stories in the newspapers and portals this morning. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.